As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League season two. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash totally. Good afternoon, passengers. This is a pre-boarding announcement for flight 899. Please have your boarding pass and identification ready. Budapest, Copenhagen, Roma, London. Totally football show at the Euros. Dams good, Denmark swaggering to the last 16, Austria through two, and Lukaku's walking into the knockout stages. Plus Tuesday's action, Group D reaches its conclusion with Scotland and England facing selection headaches. Gilmore's out, Mountain Chilwell might be, perhaps more troubling, Kane starts. This is the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello listener, that was a fun Monday's action at Euro 2020, wasn't it? I'm Matt Davis-Adams, alongside me to discuss it, our resident Russian Sasha Gurinov is in the house. Good evening. Good evening to you. Uh, and it's the first run out of the tournament for one of the most celebrated cerebral writers in the game. But no match for old MDA when it comes to a quiz. Rory Smith of the New York Times. Hi, Rory. I knew you'd bring that up. The questions were rigged. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're over the halfway point of the tournament now and we're wrapping up groups like a like a disgruntled WhatsApp user. Uh, here's who qualified as a result of the results on Monday. Belgium, Denmark, Austria, Czech Republic, England, Sweden and Switzerland. And Rory, at half-time of the games tonight, I was thinking we were going to have a lively debate about how this whole going through in third place kind of kills the drama of the knockout stages. But actually, the second half flipped that on its head, didn't it? And kind of added to it? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a payoff, I think, really. That This format isn't perfect. That's not a particularly controversial opinion. There are, there are drawbacks with it. And the one I think that UEFA are least comfortable with is the fact that the Swiss have basically kind of thought they qualified for a day but didn't really know and they couldn't plan who they're going to face and they didn't know where they'd be travelling. And that's not really ideal. You have that that kind of inconvenience. The flip side is that I think basically all the games are live. So obviously England against the Czechs is two teams who've already qualified, but it's not dead rubber because both of them will want to finish second. You have... Group E with Sweden, the Slovaks and Spain all all potentially still going through. So everything's every game is live there. And obviously group group F is, is brilliantly poised. So you you do get kind of more drama in the long run, but like we saw tonight, it tends to tends to take a little while to to bubble up to the surface. It's kind of a slow burn drama because there is that 
nagging doubt in the backs of the team's minds, I think, that that they might be able to get through with a point. That the situation, it, it's not worth gambling going all in straight away. It's only when the situation changes that you have to react. And in terms of drama, I think the last, what, half hour tonight is 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 just classic tournament fair. That's that's what you want. And the other thing on the format that I would say is that I don't think we should be under any illusions that, that 32 team World Cups are necessarily sort of every single game is live. Every single game has something riding on it. You get loads of dead rubbers in 32 team World Cups and you used to get dead rubbers in 16 team Euros as well because no format is is entirely perfect. This isn't my favoured one. I think the Euro should go to 32 now, but there are times when when we're quite lucky to have it. What do you think, Sash? This, this format's here to stay now, right? Well, I, th- I think we kind of uh, we were dissing the format uh, during the second round of games, and then during the third, uh, as was mentioned, it kind of comes alive. Thing is, this takes me back to my childhood because if you remember, the World Cups '86, uh, 1994 were in this format, so sort of I'm quite familiar with it, and also with Russia, or Soviet Union just missing out. But I think also it's interesting. I, I don't know whether the players know this evening exactly what's going on because you could see Russia go two 0 down, make loads of subs get a goal back. At that stage, they were actually third with a terrible goal difference, but they were still kind of in the tournament. Uh, yet, they were already set up to try to get back into the game and got absolutely pummeled. Uh, so I think sort of those little permutations throughout the evening, I'm not even sure that the players are aware of it, but certainly following it from a distance and then when you're counting goals and then Finland are through, certainly it gets very, very exciting, particularly, I mean, that's why maybe we're recording a little bit later than usual is because we're trying to count all the permutations and trying to process this whole information. So I think tonight certainly was a um, uh, one in the basket, you know, for for the for for this format because I thought it was very very exciting last thirty minutes. Sure was, and we'll go through Monday's games in detail next. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Nothing so nice as a stroll through the park and on a summer's eve, unless you're Russia, of course. Denmark sauntering into second place in Group B after dismantling Sasha's boys in a stunning second half. And Mikel Damsgaard put the Danes on their way to victory. And they then scored thrice more in the second half, including a thronker from Andreas Christensen. One of those guys has been shouting for a while, I think. <laughs> you can tell from, uh, from his voice. Uh, I would describe Christensen's goals as a pile driver. I think it was a classic pile driver there. But uh, yeah, I think um, it's from Russia's point of view, it's a bit of a shame the way this worked out because I thought they actually did really well to nullify uh, Denmark in the first half. They only had the one shot on target. Uh, Dom's got beauty. An absolute world, you know, he had to drop a little bit deeper to pick up the ball. But I think, apart from that, Russia actually did really, really well. Then, of course, they tried to open up a bit in the second half. And then Zobnin has his Steven Gerrard moment when he passes his back without looking. Even if he passed to his own goalkeeper, it would have been fine. But the pass was so bad. He was actually away from the goalkeeper. And I thought at that stage, uh, Russia were completely done because they, like, I couldn't really see them get back into it in any way at all. Lots of substitutions, completely lost the shape. Did get the penalty, but I thought after that, Denmark was so clinical. And I mean, they didn't really sit back. If you remember, uh, running up to the third goal, Safonov, uh, the Russian goalkeeper, was making saves left, right and centre. Russia had been torn apart at that stage. And obviously, I think here you could feel the crowd. I mean, it's, 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 it's a night of European football. I mean, you could almost think like, you know, Champions League and what the home crowd can do for you. And they were going absolutely nuts for them, driving them forward. And, you know... Also, in this type of situation, two quick-fire goals, the third and fourth Danish goal, when you're still celebrating the third, the fourth comes in and the whole place just goes absolutely berserk. And I think those Danish fans thoroughly deserve it. And what a night to be at Parken. Yeah, not not a great night for Gurionov, Rory, but but this will end up being one of the most memorable games of the tournament, won't it, for, for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who've quite rightly, to- totally understandably, kind of not not necessarily adopted Denmark as their second team. I'm not really sure I believe in the concept of second teams, but I think there's a lot of of public goodwill, a lot of sympathy for for what the Danes have been through, and we shouldn't we shouldn't fall into that trap of of thinking that because they've qualified for the last 16 of a major tournament that all the trauma goes away. It it doesn't, you know, the the, the players, the friends of Christian Eriksen's will have will will take months and years to recover properly from to process kind of what they went through. Um but I think it kind of shows the whole story, this sounds really cheesy and it's it's probably partly because I've literally just written something that says this. Therefore I want to kind of push my narrative. But 
it kind of shows how little football matters and how much it means at the same time. That it, it in the in the grand scheme of things, it, it doesn't really make any difference whether Denmark qualify for the last sixteen or not. What matters is that people are healthy and that people are people are happy and safe and all that. But if you look at the crowd in in, in the park and you look at the players, that they sort of sense that. I think Kasper Schmeichel and a couple of the others looked relatively close to tears once they once the qualification was assured. It shows how much it means and it'll mean an awful lot to Ericsson. And I always think that in the in the moments where really bad things happen in football, that we all have this this knee jerk reaction, which is to say, look, it does, football doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's you know, it's just a game, it's a silly game, silly game that we all like. Aren't we stupid for liking it? It really does matter to a lot of people. It brings a lot of people a lot of happiness, and it. I, I think it's really hard not to feel delighted for those Danish players. But my my favourite minute in terms of the drama was the minute where the Danes thought Belgium had scored, the Danes found out Belgium hadn't scored, and the Danes conceded a penalty. That is is that was ninety seconds of just vintage. That might be the greatest ninety seconds of European Championship football of all time. Ja, VAR spiller også en hovedrolle her. Romelu Lukaku's ene store tog, eller tonnejlen, er offside. 0-0 stadigvæk Finland-Belgien. Na zamenom. Nerve u всех. Bjørn Dzuba. I zabivajet. Artem Dzuba zabivajet. Mjæs varota sbornej. Dani. It was just perfect. And you can, you can hate VAR and you can hate the format. But in, you're not, you couldn't script a drama better than that. It was... It was mag- it was exquisite drama. I really that that will live with me for a long time. That that, that ninety seconds of utter bedlam. Yeah, pretty special. It's what tournaments are all about. Um, Sash, I wanted to ask you about the the Russian goalkeeper and how close were you to getting a call up? Because my goodness me, it didn't look great. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, he did actually okay um, in the previous game against Finland. I know it's only Finland, but he didn't put the foot wrong. And he played in the Champions League for Krasnodar, and I thought he he looked a bit ropey. But at the same time, he's still pretty young. He got thrown into this tournament after Shunin, um, you know, gifted Belgium a goal and wasn't very convincing in the first game. But yeah, I think this is precisely the game where you want your kind of goalkeeper and your defenders to be a little bit more confident and to stop giving away goals. Because I mean, Russia did the same thing against Belgium. I mean, if Russia set up the way they set up 5-3-1-1, you at least have to rely on not making stupid mistakes. So they make two against Belgium and they make the key one tonight. Um, For me, to be honest, I don't really, apart from those mistakes in terms of like Russia tactics and how they set up to play, apart from the first half against Belgium, nothing, none of this was particularly surprise. And I think like today, they did succeed for quite a long period of the game. But once, once they're in the position where they have to recover, this is where it becomes difficult. And also one other thing as well, Denmark, I think, becomes the only team in history in a major tournament to qualify from a second place with a win and two defeats. Sasha, can I ask you a question? With all sort of affection and respect, in Russia, and I think the same thing kind of applies to Turkey, how, how much of a conversation is there within Russia now that kind of every other sort of substantially kind of powerful Western nation, Western European nation has, has won a tournament of some sort, even if it was ages ago? Is there, not, is there a sense of within Russia that they, they kind of need to learn how to do it? Because it is kind of a joke now. Yeah, so Russia in the post-Soviet era, I think, got out of the group I think in two tournaments out of 11 or something like that. So this was 2008 and uh, the 2018 World Cup. See, at national level, there isn't particularly continuity between the managers. I mean, Cherchesov at the moment, I think he's the longest serving Russian manager. And his ideas, I mean, he's not, he's not a great ideas man, as, as anyone would say. You also look at this team and, you know, you don't really see much of a talent. I mean, you're thinking, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, they have to be complete, like, rip everything up and reform everything. Because I think... If you look at this, they got three talented midfielders. They have only one one way of playing. If you look at the league as well, since 2018, it's completely collapsed. So all that money that they spent on stadiums and roads and whatever else, instead of spending it on grassroots football, I mean, but the, again, the priorities and to whom you're accountable. So therefore, it's important to build a large stadium in Saransk, which gets used by no one for hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, than to actually improve you know, education or football. Because I think... You look at the 2018 World Cup, I think they did the best with what they had, but the football they played compared to 2008 is absolutely nothing like it. And maybe, again, you know, in Turkey, there is talk of now of bringing maybe a foreign manager with fresh ideas. But I think in Turkey, for example, uh, the problem is they, because of short-termism of everything and how nuts completely everything is, they stop producing coaches because it's impossible to work. It's impossible to progress. In Russia, I think the situation is more like everyone kind of lost their interest a little bit. And uh, after 2018, and I can't really see 
this jolting it into anything because they did as well as they expected to be. You know, they expected to go into a game against Denmark and try to scrape third place. They failed, just about. They were kind of in there. So I don't really see how this is this thing, thing is going to get ripped up. I also don't understand how, at the moment, they're going to reverse this malaise um, that Russian footballs fall into. I think, give it two, three seasons, they will probably fall out of the top 10 in Europe and they will just, currently, the way I'm seeing it, they will just continue descending. Sash, that felt cathartic for you. Um, so it is Denmark who go through from Group B as a top two team alongside Belgium. Didn't look that way, though, until this happened. Love the laugh at the end there. That's Danish commentary of Belgium beating Finland by two goals to nil. Rory, you kept an eye on this one for us. Finland unlucky, etc. Even though they've had like one shot on target in the tournament, but is is there a worry for Belgium that they started with the majority of their big hitters here, and it took them what seventy six minutes to to break down Finland? Yeah, I'd be slightly concerned if I was Roberto Martinez. I, they seem to be playing at walking pace, the Belgians, and I think that's something that they've really struggled with throughout the group. This has been a relatively kind group for the Belgians. And they've, you know, they played in fits and starts against the Danes. They kind of got going when De Bruyne came on in the second half. They didn't have to play well to beat Russia because Russia was so supine, uh, even in St. Petersburg. The And then against the Finns, Finland were well organised. I thought Tim Spav and... Um, Arieri, the, the two central defenders, did really well. They Glenkamara midfield was was neat and tidy and solid. They they carry a bit of a threat up front. They're not a bad side, Finland, but you know the number one ranked team in the world, potential favourites for this tournament. I think according to some models, still the favourites for this tournament should be swatting them side with a kind of imperious air, or at least having the common decency to play their reserves and struggle to a one 0 win. And Belgium did neither. They, they just looked like a team stretching around for form a little bit, to be perfectly honest. Hazard was saw a lot of the ball, but didn't really make any particular impact. And it was only in the in the last 25, 30 minutes, I guess, when, when Lukaku basically decided, right, I'm going to win this on my own now, because I am quite clearly a lot better than all of the footballers on this pitch, that the Belgians eased away. And it was, in the end, relatively comfortable for them. And I think that to an extent you can maybe make an allowance that they, they wouldn't have been entirely sure quite how hard they needed to try. I think that enters into, into players' minds a little bit that that when you know you're pretty much through and when you know that you're probably going to finish first, that you don't necessarily stretch yourself for that, you know, that ball that's just out of reach. You don't necessarily go full throttle in the sprint. It's it's not that you switch down to kind of 30% energy, but you maybe drop down to 98% and that that can be that can make a massive difference. But there'd be something in that, in the three performances put together, that if I was Martinez, I'd worry that maybe my team isn't quite going to hit its straps at the right time. They they have the squad to win the tournament, but tournaments are about timing and momentum, and Belgium looked like they might have got theirs wrong. So Lukaku got the second goal. Uh, the first one goes down as an own goal from, from the goalkeeper after Thomas Vermaelen's header. Sash, can you tell me who Thomas Vermaelen most recently or currently plays for his contract's just about thrown out this feels like something you'd know is he playing for someone like was he still in Barcelona no 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 uh, someone in Japan yes uh, someone like the retirement home team in Japan Urawa Red Diamonds no, there's one where, where it... lots of European players have gone in the last is it Vissel is it Vissel Kobe it is Vissel Kobe Quiz answer. Sash, and I Sash, the thing yeah, is that, yeah. that Matt, Matt asked you that. Does he beat me in a quiz so he doesn't respect me? That's what, it, that's what that came down to. No, I think the reason he asked me that was because one of the quiz questions was Vissel Kobe, yeah. which was, I looked yeah. up about 15 minutes before the quiz. Yeah. I actually got five out of five of yours right, to be fair. I still, I'm not bitter. It's fine. Oops. Uh, to be honest, look, like I had to go through the whole process of a sympathy third place for, for Jules because, uh, <laughs> you know, someone... <laughs> You know, someone had to let him win. <laughs> Meant to be a bit of fun. It's left quite a few of us pretty bitter. I wonder scars, Mac. Let's scars. Yeah. Um, by the way, on Belgium, there's a good article from Adam Crafton upon The Athletic on the impact of Thierry Omri on the Red Devils. Uh, eventually, we did see that impact tonight. Finland, as I say, three shots on target, target in the entire tournament. They'll have to wait to see if they go through as a best place third side. Can I just add one thing? Um, 
Lukas Hradetsky, uh, the um, Finland goalkeeper. In the first game against Denmark, um, before Eriksen collapsed, I was looking at the way Hradetsky was playing and he was dropping everything. And I was like, oh my God, he's, he's really going to throw, throw one in here. Because I mean, I think it's a sign of tension. And then he had... He played really well for the rest of the time. He said the penalty in the first game. He played well against Russia. He was playing well today. And then something ridiculous happened to him. And ridiculous things happened to him. It's like he miskicks the ball against Arminia Bielefeld. And he goes into his own net. He, like, shanks clearances in Champions League and get put into empty net. Shots from Lewandowski go through him. And I thought today was just the ultimate Hradeski. Uh, there's nothing he can do. He just turns around and it hits his hand and goes in. I don't think this happens to any other goalkeeper. That is broadly right. But on this one... I, I think it's harsh to blame him. No, I'm not going to blame him. I'm just, I'm just saying because it's like mad things happen to him. He, and, yeah, he, yeah, he is like a chaos agent, Lucas Radetzky, but mm. I, I don't... <laughs> you could, you, if that was an England goalkeeper you, or a home nation's goalkeeper, there would have been a big scandal about what a terrible goalkeeper they were and how they should be shot or whatever. <laughs> but I, I think in the circumstances, it, in slow motion, it looks terrible. In slow motion, he looks like a man who can't control his hands and he's for some reason playing in goal in a major tournament. <laughs> But the, at the, at, in kind of real speed, oh, he had no time at all to react. He's, and his hand just happened to be there. So I felt a huge degree of sympathy for him. Yeah, it's just terrible luck. Um, yeah. But I, it, was, it was just one of those things. I was thinking, yeah, if anyone has terrible luck, it'd probably be you, mate. Yeah, like that, that does not happen to Manuel Neuer. <laughs> it's like, you know, sometimes stuff happens to Kepa, like that goal that Arsenal scored against him. Like, I don't yeah. really think... That doesn't happen to many goalkeepers, but it, Kepa just attracts that sort of thing. Even though it wasn't his fault either. The Larry David of uh, Premier League goalkeepers. <laughs> uh, well, Group C was also concluded on Monday. We'll tell you what happened and why after this. The Euros are here, and we'd better make the most of them because they only come around every four, uh, five years. So if your bookie isn't making you feel special, then maybe it's time to find a new one. Yep, not so much carpe diem as carpa diem. Hmm. If the grass is greener on the other side, come and play on it. If your bookie's not giving you the best rewards, switch and you'll get a completely free £5 bet builder on the Czech Republic versus England this Tuesday. Paddy Power! Free match bet builder bets, only match one free bet, min two plus legs online exclusive, must have previously deposited T's and C's apply, 80 plus, be gambleaware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Not a good tournament for Dark Horses. Turkey tumbled on Sunday and on Monday, Ukraine missed the chance to confirm qualification as they went down by a goal to nil to the now free-flowing all-out attack Austria. Christoph Baumgartner's goal midway through the first half. The difference here... Uh, Rory, will this new attack-minded Austria continue or, or was this just needs must for Franco Foda? I suspect a little bit of the latter. They do have some good players, the Austrians, and they've been they've been kind of flirting with being that kind of trendy dark horse for, for quite a while now. You've looked at the squad and thought there's, there's something there that, that could be quite special. Mainly David Alaba, obviously. It, it's mainly kind of, I can see David Alaba plays for them. There must be two or three other good players in this squad so I can get excited about them. They, they, they've done well to get out of the group. I think Ukraine are, are not a bad team at all. That was that was always going to be the game that kind of decided who finished who finished second behind the Dutch. Um, Italy in the last 16, I suspect the Austrians will, will have to be slightly more cautious because the Italians have got so much more firepower with which to hurt you that the Austrians, I suspect, will... will Prefer to kind of sit back, absorb pressure, and try and try and catch them out on the break. And they've got they've got players who can who can do damage, but whether whether there's enough there to get past the Italians, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. They feel like a last sixteen team, Austria. And what about Ukraine? Sash pretty flat from them here. 
Yeah, I think, I wonder how much uh, psychologically, even without players realizing it, they were thinking, you know, a draw suits both teams. Because I th- A, I think Ukraine did not expre- expect, you know, such press. B, David Alaba did an absolutely incredible job on Yarmolenko in the first half, uh, which gradually sapped the confidence from the rest of the Ukraine side. And there was loads of errors, like some misplaced passes towards the end of the first half, because they suddenly had no outlet. And the problem for Ukraine was that what I think Austria did so smartly was they funneled them through the middle because they realized that on the other side, Malinovsky wasn't really prepared as a to play as a proper left winger. And this was Ukraine's dilemma before the game because Tsigankov wasn't ready, obviously Zubkov's out injured. They weren't sure who's going to be playing on the left. And my understanding is they thought they'd take turns and get Mikolenko to support them. So in the end, actually, it ended up being a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of a jumble. It ended up without a left winger, funneled through the middle where they got completely shut down by Austrian press. And of course, again, Sidorchuk playing because Stepanenko's issues with his knee. He had his, you know, um, he has he had uh, an operation in his meniscus. He can't play every few days. So he couldn't really play after playing against North Macedonia. But should they make it through, I think he'll be back into it. And I think Sidorchuk is the kind of a level below. So they got gobbled up in midfield as well. Zinchenko gradually lost his way. And I think once they made some changes for the second half, Austria were already comfortable, confident, and Ukraine's, Ukraine's confidence in turn was shot. So they weren't really able to to mount any sort of um, uh, any any sort of comeback, but should they make it through, I think the central midfield would be different. Malinovsky would probably be being said. Sigankov, I think, should finally be fit to play ninety minutes. So I think there might be a different proposition. But now it's a waiting game for them. However, Belgium's uh, win over Finland has given them them a lifeline. They're on three points right now. They want they need one more team to be worse than them out of the remaining three third places. So I think they're, they're still in with a shout. Yeah, and Austria beating Ukraine, a good result for Scotland, means that if they beat Croatia tomorrow, that's one third-place team. They're guaranteed to be above. More on them later. Uh, we don't need to spend long on Netherlands 3, North Macedonia nil. The Netherlands perfect through the group stage as they dispatch the pointless Macedonians 3-0. Genie Wijnaldum scored twice after Memphis Depay had the Dutch in front. Uh, Rory, really the story here is the farewell to Goran Pandev and the uh, the guard of honour that he got as he as he left the field, it's it's so difficult to talk about North Macedonia without patronising them, and the same with Pandav at this tournament. But that was a feel good moment. Yeah, it's and I think that it's important to remember that those stories have their place in international football. Ultimately, that is part of it's part of what international football is about. That North Macedonia are never going to win a major tournament, and barring some. I, but maybe not never. It's extremely unlikely that North Macedonia will ever win a major tournament, and you know that they will produce four or five players every every so often who who we become kind of conscious of in in the major European leagues and who who do well. That the the most that they can hope to achieve, I guess, is to qualify for a tournament and to give a good account of themselves. And I think, to be honest, they've although they've lost all three games, they've they've done that. They've not been outclassed, given that they qualified through the the kind of bottom bit of the nation's league. They've they've not disgraced themselves at all. They've played some good stuff. They've they've scored goals. They've they've looked a threat. They've they've been well organised. They've certainly not been pushovers. Um, I think the Dutch very you know very clearly outclassed them, and that was any any great surprise. Uh, and for a player like Pandev, who who probably at you know two or three years ago would have thought he would never play in a major tournament just by accident of birth. It's brilliant that at 37 he's had chance to to do that. That you know, we bemoan the fact that George Best never got chance to play in a major tournament. George Best would have bloody loved the Nations League and the fact that you know there was half a chance that he might get to play in the Euros because of it. And I I don't think I think we tend to be very very kind of big nation centric because we happen to be in a country that considers considers itself a major footballing power. The jury I think in the rest of Europe is very much out on that one. But we tend to look at we tend to assume that international football is for England and for Germany and for Italy and Spain and France. And to an extent it is, but it's also for North Macedonia and for Georgia and for Bulgaria and for Latvia. They all deserve a moment or something to aim for as much as anything else. And Pandev's given them that. And I think, yeah, that that, that is a great story. And in North Macedonia, the, the fact that they were here is significant enough. They didn't need to do any more than that. So I, I, I think that it's nice to have those heartwarming moments and we shouldn't pretend that it isn't. Yeah, well said. And uh, producer Abby pointing out that Pandev is actually older than North Macedonia, just to add some extra <laughs> extra ingredients. But, but at the same time, he is younger than me. So, you know, let's not let's not pretend he's too old. He's only 37. He's still a he's still a whippersnapper. He's got so much of his life to live. A <laughs> uh, little bit of news. Who's Mandan Bailey out of the tournament after his knee injury against Hungary on Saturday? 
Elsewhere, Rory, the start of the longest-running transfer saga of the summer. Man City reportedly putting in a £100 million bid for Harry Kane. They might chuck a few players in too. Are this one of those things where you just think, not now, mate. We're in the middle of a really fun international tournament. Can we not just can we not just park this for a couple of weeks? Yeah, I'm surprised that I'm slightly surprised at the timing. Um, it's been reported by reputable sources, so we assume the story's direct that they have made they have made this initial approach to Spurs. And I think, look, the important thing to say is that transfers don't work in real life like we think they do. So you know, Man City will not have kind of run. Ferran Sariano won't have run Daniel Levy and said, I will offer you £100 million plus a selection of footballers if you give me Harry Kane. It will have been, they will be talking and that will be the figure that has kind of leaked out um, that is being discussed. I'm surprised that that, that there isn't a kind of almost a moratorium. Like there used to be in the Olympics in ancient Greece where you had to stop all wars while the games happened. I feel as though that should happen with transfers to an extent. Does it, it can't be desperately helpful and it will be, it will be sort of, it will be drip feeding through to Kane kind of what's what's going on. And I'm not convinced that that's really in his interest or in England's interest. And if you presume that's happening to every to every team in the tournament, I'm sure that all of the managers will be getting annoyed about it. Um, but at the same time, I would get used to Harry Kane, will he, won't he stories, because I suspect we're going to have quite a few of them uh, over the next, what, two, three months before the transfer window shuts. This is just the first of a flood. Well, we'll turn our attention back to the Euros next and Tuesday's Double D action, by which I mean there are two games happening concurrently in Group D. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with Matt Davis-Adams. Tuesday then we'll see the resolution of Group D. England and the Czech Republic guaranteed to go through after what happened on Monday. Scotland and Croatia could also make it through via the back door as well. That will start a look ahead with the Czech Republic against England. It's at Wembley at 8pm UK time. Wembley scene of ignominy for England on Friday night as Gareth Skies were booed from the field of play having stunk up the joint against Scotland. Uh, and Rory, Gareth Southgate dealt a real curveball on Monday with this news that Mason Mount and Ben Chilwell will have to isolate after coming too close to Billy Gilmore, the only England players he did on Friday, etc. and so on. But he doesn't know if they're going to be able to play in this game or if they are not. It seems a very curious situation that there's not a, a strict and clear protocol put in place for this happening. Yeah, it's really odd. And I think obviously we have to take the COVID protocols really seriously. And I, I don't want to... Not not make light of them, but I don't want to kind of suggest there's controversy where there might not be any. I'm sure there's lots of good reasons for why this has taken place. But the the fact, first of all, the fact that Billy Gilmore has managed to contract COVID nineteen test positive whilst in Scotland's bubble, I think, is concerning. Um, the fact that Scotland, because they're based in England for the tournament, the fact that none of their other players have to isolate, I think, is slightly strange. Um, we knew it was going to be a risk. 
that this that this might happen. We've already seen a couple of players uh, miss out. Joao Cancelo's not here because he he tested positive. Um, but then the fact that none of the Scotland players have to isolate, but two England players do, and that those two England players just so happen to be the two England players who there was a photo of with Billy Gilmore after the game all seems a bit strange to me. And I'm not saying that anyone's done, done anything wrong and I'm not saying that that any of this is not precautionary and um, necessary and is not the most sensible course of action. But the whole thing is slightly odd to me. And it, I, I don't know whether... So if, if presumably the idea is if Chilwell and Mount then take a lateral flow or a PCR tomorrow morning, what, on the day of the game, and they come back negative, then they're okay to play... That, that isn't really how it works for the rest of the country. It's not ideal. Um, it's a very messy situation. It, it's incredibly complex and I wouldn't pretend to have the answers, but there is a lot of strangeness uh, about several aspects of it to me. And even if we leave aside that kind of angle of it, Sash, there's no way that either of these two players can start the game tomorrow now, is there? With Gareth Southgate not knowing, presumably, up until a couple of hours before kickoff, whether he's going to be able to select them. Surely he just has to rule them out and work on the basis that they're not going to be able to play. Well, uh, so far he seems to have been very happy to rule out Chilwell, much to my surprise, because I think Chilwell and Mount have made an excellent combination down the flanks, one that should have been used in a national team. So sort of, and this link up and understand you can't really build over a number of weeks, but they've had it over the whole season and I'm really puzzled why, why they haven't played together so far. So effectively, I think he needs to replace Mount in his midfield. And I think this is where, especially looking at the Scotland game, like what does he do with the structure of that midfield? Because I was, I was surprised um, about how they functioned. And in the first half, I thought it was Rice and Phil- behind Phillips and Mount. Then Phillips seems to have dropped back towards Rice and they left the whole central midfield open, which then Scotland proceeded to dominate by pushing up, I think it was a bit of McTominay and everything, but the, the, his tactics so far have been have struck me as being really strange. So A, I don't think he will be out seems to have, seems should, should affect his plans, but Mount being out maybe might actually be helpful in a way because he has to rethink the way his midfield works. Presumably what happens though is that the, the sort of sainted hero of the English nation, Jack Grealish, plays and and I don't know rainbows come down from on high and <laughs> I don't know oxen lie down with doves or whatever it is I'm not I'm not familiar with the bible but th- th- this seems to be the, the moment where where Southgate will I think Matt's totally right I don't, I don't really understand just from a practical point of view even if they test negative and hopefully they, they both do how Mount and Chilwell having missed the day of training can be named in the starting lineup that would be really strange Mount's a really important player for England but Southgate does have a relatively ready-made replacement, someone with different strengths and a different way of playing that that role, but but someone who can fit, can fill in relatively easily, and he can, and this this shouldn't be important, but it probably is. He can kind of nip a, a sort of emerging story in the bud just by just by playing Jack Grealish, because that's what the country seems to be demanding. Given that thing on the through, um, and they only really need to draw it, there probably isn't much that he he can lose here. Um, again, looking at the way that Czech Republic played so far. I think perhaps this is the game where he he should try something. It could be Grealish, but I don't think he has much to lose here because I don't really see England losing this game. So he might as well you know play around with midfield, do what the nation wants, do what he wants. Um, so yeah, uh, I I don't. I'm if I were Southgate, I wouldn't be particularly concerned to be honest. Lots of talk, Rory, about how England might want to finish second to avoid a, a tougher last sixteen game. Surely the same applies to the Czech Republic. Yep, this it'd be a hilarious battle of two teams <laughs> desperate to lose. I think. The, the the argument again. So I'm I'm very much in in the you should you have to game the tournament. If there is an easier path, you you have to be at least aware of the fact that there is an easier path. And I think it comes down to what you think the point of the tournament is. And I know we all say that the point of the tournament tournament is winning it. But I think, and this this isn't just me kind of theorising. But if you talk to people within football about knockout football, whether that's club or international. I think a lot of managers look at it and think, my job is really to get us to the semis. And then once you get into the semis, pretty much anything can happen. You, you, it could be, a, you know, less so with VAR, but it could be a bad call. It could be an injury. It could be, you know, exhaustion levels. It could be that you run into a team that's just in, in that kind of glorious moment. But if I can get us to the semis, then we stand the chance and we will, we will take our chances beyond that. So I think there is an argument that if it's easier to finish second, and this isn't going back to the format as we discussed it before, this is one of the issues with this format that it is a, there is a very uneven there are very uneven routes to the to the to the final four. 
I don't think there's some sort of disgrace in in thinking actually, do you know what? If second's easier than than first, then then we'll then that's not a bad that's not a bad idea. The complication is that you can't go into a game and think we don't have to win this. Because if you think if you go into a game and think we don't have to win this, you will lose it. And if you lose games, then you you end up with kind of unforeseen complications. Um, but I, I certainly don't see this idea that I don't. I, th- I think the logic that you have to play the difficult teams to win it is wrong. I think it's short sighted. I think you do have to play some difficult teams, but if you can minimise how many you have to play, that's probably quite a, a good idea. And from Southgate's point of view, in this case. If he has to play a difficult team in the last 16 or a difficult team in the semi-final, which one do you think is not going to cost him his job? Yeah, and let's not forget England always lose when they play the difficult teams. And they might well lose this match as well because it's on ITV, which is never... If that's not enough England content for you, have a listen to the aptly named The England Show, also from The Athletic, available wherever you get your pods. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, host of The England Show, brought to you daily throughout Euro 2020. I'll be joined by writers from The Athletic and special guests to bring you unrivaled coverage dedicated to the England team this summer. So for expert insight into Southgate's squad and post-game reaction to all the games, search for The England Show wherever you get your podcasts or via The Athletic app. The other game in Group D, Croatia versus Scotland at Hampden Park. What was that Duncan Alexander was saying about a lot of teams thinking they're unlucky, but Scotland actually being unlucky? Well, in that spirit, Billy Gilmore has tested positive for COVID-19, as we mentioned. Uh, Thus, he won't be available for this game as he starts a 10-day isolation period. Earlier, I caught up with TIFO Football's Mac Daddy, JJ Ball, to see how Scotland will be without we, Billy. Uh, JJ, how are Scotland going to readjust without Billy Gilmore? Then is it is it McTominay back to central midfield and, and go to the uh, the system that worked so poorly against the Czechs? That that doesn't seem ideal. Uh, yeah, I mean, for context, he's played one game, right? <laughs> well, I mean, one and a half basically. He's played in the friendly as well. Although he was very good against England, um, yeah, I think you'd have McGregor definitely in there. I think it's really important to have him in there. It's probably going to be a three in the midfield, but I mean, it's relevant to how Scotland are going to play against Croatia. Is that I'd imagine they won't try and play through the midfield because um, they have some rather good players in there like Luka Modric. So it's probably going to play around and uh, over. <laughs> so you're probably going to have Shea Adams and Lyndon Dykes will both start, I think, rather than having Christie or Ryan Fraser off. You might have just play Dykes or just play Adams and then have them try and knock balls on if you're going to go long rather than try and win the ball from the first header you know second ball follow up it might be that they go long with the top and then has a, a player runs off him to try and chase it which could be Fraser or Christie the question then is if you want to play those balls out from the back to the strikers do you want to have either you probably put uh, Jack Hendry in there as the right centre back because Grant Hanley is going to play at the back Tierney will be left and then your right centre-back could be Jack Henry. He can play the balls, but like your big threat against Croatia is Perisic on that left. So do you think he's good enough to deal with that? And then you could play McTominay on the left, sorry, on the right side of the centre-back, and then he's better at uh, distributing the ball. He gives you a bit more... He's very good against England as well, I thought. So you could play that, and then if you take Henry out and put McTominay at the back, it means you could put in... Oh, this is the thing you don't really know. It makes sense having McGinn and McGregor as a two, possibly. And then you could play um, Dykes with two runners off him. Like you could play Fraser and and, uh, and Christie or something else. But I think they'll play two in the middle. So then it kind of limits you to wanting to put either David Turnbull on, who is, I think he's only played one game since he came into the squad. So that's unlikely. And you might have Stuart Armstrong, who did start the first game against Czechs and kept drifting out wide and wasn't really affecting the play. So there's options. It would be nice if Gilmore was there. He was really good, wasn't he? But yeah. What about playing at Hampden? Is is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Is Scotland better when there's not so much emphasis on them to kind of do the attacking and when, when they can, you know, soak up some pressure and try and hit on the break and, and they don't have the majority of the crowd kind of urging them on and trying to get them to score goals? Or is that just a nonsense theory that I've made up? Uh, I don't think it's a nonsense theory. I see what you're saying. I mean, you could say... With the crowd behind you roaring your own, you get the added kind of impetus of some adrenaline, and you get the players always talk about how it makes them run the extra uh, few yards or whatever. You know, it makes them it just makes them enjoy the game more because they feel more into it and they get more out of themselves. And we see that in how uh, I think games there's there's passes are slower, the games are slower. That's just what's happened without crowds, thanks to the coronavirus. So 
With Hamden behind you, you'd think that would give them a bit more impetus, but it might make them rush passes and you'd need a bit more calm. But that's just a case of cooling the players down, keeping it calm. Uh, I like the juxtaposition of Andy Robertson roaring at his teammates to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> There's one way to deliver that bit of information that's by screaming at them. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think playing at Hamden should be a negative part. Croatia will they'll have all the ball like they will and and Scotland people should know that way Scotland play is very much in transition you know they play a very narrow forward five which is the midfield and the forwards and then a, a back five that falls deeper and they want to try and hit teams where they can and you want to avoid whatever Croatia's got like I said before the midfield's the best part of the team they've not really done offered anything really up front or in wide areas Perisic is obviously dangerous you want to watch out for him but yeah, no, I think I think I think Hamden should be an advantage because it is at home and it's the last game, potentially, <laughs> of the tournament. I mean, I mean, everyone knows we're going to win this game, but then miss out because of goal difference or some other new rule that comes in to deny it. That's what will happen. Well, my final question was going to be: Are Scotland going to win? But you, you've kind of answered it there. I guess the the big question within that is who's going to score a goal for them. Is it going to be Shea Adams? Is it going to be Lyndon Dykes? Is it going to be somebody totally out of left field? Because somebody needs to to step up, don't they? There's been a lot of positives about both performances, but but the the big unanswered question is how are Scotland going to get the ball in the net? Well, yeah, and this is the thing. Like Scotland played well, but it's it's I mean it's far easier to destroy than it is to create, right? So and you'll have a lot of teams, even North Macedonia. We're recording this right now; it's half time, and they're um they look decent because they are defending very well it's, it's, you can organise a team defensively and get their shape right as long as there's no space being denied and no one's doing anything silly then it's just it's not easy to coach that but it's just it's a lot easier to play that way if you're the worst team it's why you get upsets in the FA Cup and stuff like that a small team can beat a massive one I think that in terms of who we're, how we're going to score it's probably honestly going to be from a set piece probably Grant Hanley smashing the header somewhere a bit of a stromash in the box also the most likely I think is going to be someone like John McGinn but one thing I've noticed about this whole tournament is that teams who play at home are really good for the first five to fifteen minutes. Like they can really come out and go at them. And I mean, Scotland beat Czech Republic in a earlier in the year or just over the last year by really going at them and getting a goal within the first five. I think it was. And I think if they were to be able to go out and really attack this game from the start and get that goal, like John McGinn running off Dyke, something like that, Adams from twenty yards, it's going to be something like that. It's not going to be a, it's not going to be ticky tackered in. It's going to be quick transition or a set piece. I'd imagine. If we can get that hold out and then they've got the, the shape and the desire and determination to hold out, maybe, maybe, like, yeah, it'll be a really low scoring game, I think, I think. Well, I would say enjoy it, but I'm not sure that's going to be possible, no, so I'd just say good luck instead. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, that's my knees, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> JJ Ball from Tifo Football there. Johnny Blaine pointing out that if Ryan Christie comes in for Gilmore, Scotland could well line up as an actual 1-11. to uh, Croatia have never beaten Scotland in five previous meetings. Rory, what have you made of Croatia so far? The, the general consensus seems to be that they were a good team, but this is a tournament too far? Yep, I think that's about right. I think you can see, I was at Wembley actually for the England game, and you can see moments of class. You can see that that there are still huge, there's still a huge kind of reservoir of quality there, but I just don't think they've got the legs. The the one who stood out at Wembley was was Mateo Kovacic, who who looked like the only member of the midfield with any energy whatsoever. Um, I think people, even I mean, obviously Modric is thirty five now, but even people like Marcelo Brozovic uh, are are starting to look, and it may well be that you know it's the end of a long season, but they start they're starting to look like they they are in the autumn of their careers, shall we say, rather than at their absolute peak. Uh, and it's a shame because that Croat side was wonderful. They've had no country punches above its weight more than Croatia, really, to you know to reach World Cup finals and World Cup semi-finals and to, to compete as they do and to produce players of that quality is incredible. But the reality is that the generations end and it looks to me like they, they just don't have the legs to, to compete with any side that can... Kind of can kind of overpower them physically. They can, Croatia can be outrun against England and to an extent against the Czechs. They produce produce spells where it seemed that their brains made up for that, and that may well be enough against the Scots as well. But I think certainly against the higher quality of opposition, they'll, they'll struggle just because they don't have the athleticism really to to do any damage. The thing that I would say about Croatia is like at last quarter of a century taught us that yeah, they just get 
one generation ends and another generation comes along. So I think for some countries, they might think, oh, you know, the legs have fallen off. That's it. This is the end of us for another 20 years. With Croatia, it isn't the case. I mean, obviously, they had the great team in 96 and 98. Um, I remember that team at, uh, for example, Euro 2012. Um, it was a pretty excellent side. They were a little bit unlucky with how, you know, they, they got knocked out. Also, this team has reached the final of the World Cup. You know, so what? I mean, I, th- I still think they, they should go through, but so what if they go out in the last 16 in the quarterfinals? I think they should be able to take next two, four years to rebuild and possibly another you know, team might come in. Kovacic will still be around. Maybe someone like Avlasic would develop. They need to do something about their defense. Uh, but I feel, you know, with like um, Livakovic coming in, there is, there is, I think there is also a generation change has already is already beginning. And I think, you know, give it two, four years, maybe, you know, another two, three players would emerge that might take him up to the same level. Well, the one who actually stood out in terms of a, of a young prospect is Dvardiol. Um, mm. who's very hard to take seriously because he does sound like a sort of, like an Albion brand Pep Guardiola. But the I think he's already signed for Leipzig, but he he was he's playing out of position. He looks like, a, he looks every inch of centre-half to me, playing as a full-back. He, he, I suspect, will be a top-class player within two or three years. So there are already the green shoots of recovery, but this tournament is at the wrong time in mm. their cycle for them. There's no question about that. One thing I would add, though, I think... Um, Dinamo Zagreb has been very central to sort of player development and, you know, which players get sold and go where. And, you know, as, as we have seen over the last few years, uh, the money doesn't seem to necessarily go to the right places. And the scandal enveloping them, I wonder maybe whether they might, this might have some sort of an effect on the sort of conveyor of players. Or maybe they should, maybe they will all start just coming through, you know, Hajduk split or something. <laughs> We'll see. Uh, right, listener, we're nearly at the end of today's pod, but we still need to discuss the greatest moment in the history of association football. And we'll do that shortly. But first, let's get some odds from Paddy Power and head over to producer Ben. Thank you very much, MDA. I'm on the line with Jason Murphy from Paddy Power. Jason, a couple of absolutely enormous games tomorrow. Let's start with Scotland against Croatia. I fancy for my bet builder, Scotland to beat Croatia with a goal each for Che Adams and Lyndon Dykes. Am I absolutely crackers? No, definitely not. Definitely not. There was a few mad Scottish fans knocking around London Friday night, but hopefully they sobered up a bit now to enjoy this game. And yes, this can happen. A Scotland win with a goal from Dykes and Adams is 14-1. to The interesting thing is that we believe Scotland, with a one-goal victory here, are 95% chance of qualifying. The reason being... Of the third-place teams, we reckon a couple of them are going to finish on three points. So the win by the single goal gives Scotland a 95% chance of qualifying. But if they can win by two goals or more, then it's 99.9% chance that they get through to knockout stages, which would be incredible. Uh, so let's see what happens. But 14-1 to 1 for Scotland to win and for Dykes and Adams to score a goal each. OK, on to England versus Czech Republic then. Can you price me up the bet builder, please? A draw with goals for Patrick Schick and Harry Kane and under 2.5 yellow cards. Absolutely, we can. And listen, for this one, for the England game, we'll give you a free fiver bet builder. So this one's on us, newer existing customers. So with Paddy Power, we have to draw at 5-2. to two. Kane to score any time is even money. Under Southgate, he's got 39 caps, 34 of them as captain, scoring 29 goals. He's delivered for Southgate. He's delivered for England previously. And if England are to win a Euros, Harry Kane will have to deliver that for them as well. He needs to up the performances. Hopefully for this bet, we'll see him get off the mark with a goal. Patrick Schick, probably my favourite stack on around at the moment. If he scores against England, we have him 4-1 to do so. He'll be the first Czech player to score in all three group games since Milan Barris in 2004. We reckon both teams don't want to do anything stupid, don't want to pick up silly yellow or red cards. So under 2.5 cards, it's 10 to 11 to occur. Put the four of them in a bet builder. It comes to just shy of 80 to 1. But most importantly of all, England need to win this game to top the group. If they do, they get the easier route to the final with a last 16 in Wembley, one trip away to Rome, and potentially Netherlands in the semi-final. It's the easier route. The numbers tell us that topping the group improves England's chances of winning the Euros by 2%. Premier League clubs spend millions and millions looking for that additional 1% or 2%. England can do themselves a massive favour by winning this game. So England to beat the Czech Republic. Let's see what happens. But you can enjoy your own free fiver bet builder with Paddy Power for the game. The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Place a four-plus-fold bet builder on any football match and get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Check paddypower.com for more details. £10 max free bet. T's and C's apply. 80 plus. You can sign up for a subscription with The Athletic for unrivaled coverage of Euro 2020 brackets in 2021. Close brackets. All the articles, all the podcasts, ad-free and Q&As with writers too. It's only a pound a month for your first six months. So head to theathletic.com slash totally. 
On this day in Euros history, the 22nd of June, as I mentioned, one of the finest moments in the history of our sport and certainly the best penalty ever taken. 25 years ago today, Stuart Pearce conquering his demons from Italia 90 by scoring against Spain in the quarterfinal shootout of Euro 96. Brave man steps forward to take England's third. Banish the memory of Turin. Stuart Pearce. What a penalty! And the relief belongs not only to this championship, but to the World Cup of 1990. Obviously, this hits different for Forest supporters like me, and I can accept, Rory, that Stuart Pearce to some is somewhat of a figure of ridicule these days. Um, For some of us, he has such rarefied status that they give their dog the middle name Stuart. Um, but, But whichever camp you're in out of those two... If nothing else, it was nice to see someone who had something horrible happen to them at work in front of millions of people get the chance to make up for it. <laughs> Hang on, your dog has a middle name? Yes, his first name's Brian, his second name's Stuart. <laughs> that, that is excessive for a dog. Is this not but... to do with Family Guy? No, people often think that, but I couldn't separate Brian Clough and Stuart Pierce in terms of um, significance, so he's got both. He doesn't have Davis Adams, is... so he thought that was a nonsense when we went through all that name change business, so we let let people have their own opinions and that's fine. But anyway, Stuart Pearce, I mean, penalty. Horses for crosses. <laughs> yes, it was, I'm not a, um, I'm not a Forest fan, so Pearce doesn't have quite that resonance for me, but I think it, uh, on a purely human level, it felt like a moment of catharsis and that is universal. You could see it in his face, the kind of, just the, the kind of emotion pouring out of him, the six years of the six years of hurt that he'd had after Italia ninety, and it it was that was a really lucky, really lucky win. It's the great forgotten thing about Euro ninety six that England got absolutely played off the park by the Spanish, but for Pierce to have that moment, I think, was easy to relate to whoever you supported, and whether you supported England or not. To be perfectly honest, if you knew the back the background to it, um, it it was hard not to be pleased for Pierce, and I think that there's kind of an I think, I mean, he is, he's kind of seen as a bit of a joke figure now because he's kind of an old-fashioned coach and he, he preaches those old-fashioned values of, of hard work and intensity and all that. And he's not a kind of dapper foreign manager who has big ideas and talks about philosophy and, and holistic playing styles. But I think there's an everyman quality to Pierce that, that symbolises quite a lot of English football, for, for mainly for good, a little bit for bad. Um, he's one of those very English characters, one of those very English football characters that that I think is kind of central to our sense of self as a footballing nation. So he, when when he has a moment like that, it cuts through to people. Yeah, and he shouldn't have been playing in that tournament either because Graham Lasso got injured and that was the only reason that he did. And you could hardly find two more different players and individuals than those two, given that they play in the in the same position. Sash, do you have many memories of of this? Uh, this this is actually one of the things that grew in me over the years because I remember listening to the shootout on the way to Anfield for uh, France-Holland, a, f- a forgettable game that also finished nil-nil and went to a shootout. But um, I, I remember he- like hearing the emotion on the radio and at the time, I was only in England for, for, you know, for a couple of years, kind of didn't quite make the connection to 1990. It, it actually took me a few years, maybe until the next tournament in 98, when the whole penalty thing became a bit bigger in my head to actually understand, you know, the sort of the sort of anguish and, you know, letting the country down. And also, I think, you know, it's the sort of thing, it seems that Pierce is not someone who would be able to shake that off. I think some players will just walk out and forget about it. I think with Pierce, it definitely was taken to heart. So it took me a few years to appreciate just what a release it was. And um, for, for that, you know, every time I see it now, it's like it doesn't really stop being a beautiful moment. Yeah, and listener, if, if you fancy going back and look at, looking at it, find the BBC edit because there's a wonderful moment after the first penalty for Spain is missed where Barry Davis effectively apologises for the actions of the Wembley crowd uh, for cheering when somebody in the opposition misses a penalty and says, well, you know, th- this would probably happen anywhere. But uh, it's a shame there can't be more sporting about it which is magnificently Davis and something else I didn't realise about this game until producer Charlie pointed it out Fernando Hierro hit the bar for Spain Miguel Angel Nadal saw his penalty saved by David Seaman uh, he is the uncle of Rafa Nadal it's a funny old game etc you know when Rafa hits the net it's no good if his uncle had done maybe it would have been it's late listener we're all pretty tired 
<laughs> if we're doing on this day, then can I also mention the 22nd of June 1988 and the greatest match uh, my country or former country ever played, which was the sem Euro semi-final Soviet Union to Italy nil, where Soviet Union just flattened Italy with their pressing. Um, and it was uh, the last high point of the of Lobanovsky, possibly. And you can hear all about this on the Euro Stories podcasts. Um, and uh, 1988 is when it starts. You just saved Abby a job there. She was frantically typing that into the uh, the Google Doc that we share. Um, Rory, thanks so much for being with us today. What what have you got on your agenda for the rest of the tournament? Any more games lined up for you? Uh, yeah, I kind of kicked back into action uh, in the last 16. I um, travel is very difficult at the moment. I've not quite had the nerve to to brave the the sort of warren of exemption letters that the media have got. So I'm, I, I think, with any luck, I will be at Italy, Austria uh, on Saturday. That's my next engagement. Nice, that'll be good. Uh, Sasha will be back with us later in the tournament, of course. Uh, looking forward to it. Looking forward to Ukraine getting through so that, you know, there is a former Soviet Union interest in the rest of the tournament. Excellent. Uh, you've only got a couple more nights of me to put up with listener. I will be back tomorrow alongside Daniel Story and Tom Williams for now, though. Many thanks to Rory for being with us today and to Sasha for JJ for joining us earlier as well and to producer Abby for cobbling it all together. I'll be back tomorrow alongside Daniel Story and Tom Williams. And at that point, there will only be two more sleeps till Jimbo goes back. Thanks for listening tonight. We'll catch up with you again tomorrow. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Keep up to date with everything Totally at The Totally Show on Twitter and find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.